Good morning to you. Welcome again to Christ Church Halifax. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here. It's good to see all of you here uh, this third Sunday of Advent. I'm going to invite you to turn to the back middle portion of the worship guide uh, where we'll be uh, listening to God's word um, from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Uh, this again being the third week of Advent. Advent uh, in Latin uh, means coming or arrival. And so this is a season where the church celebrates the arrival of Christ. But the scriptures tell us that the church is not only to celebrate and rejoice and anticipate Jesus' first advent, his first coming when he was born as a little baby in Bethlehem, but also to anticipate, to get ready for, and to look forward to with joy and excitement Jesus' second advent, his second arrival, a day in the future where he will come for us again. Our Advent sermon series then this year is about celebrating the good news of Jesus's second advent. In It's okay, I'm okay. In uh, in Matthew 24 in chapter 25 It's good. <laughs> uh, there's a section of scripture that's known as the Olivet Discourse and it's because Jesus is giving this teaching in these two chapters while on the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain range that overlooked the ancient city of Jerusalem. And in these parables, in these stories that Jesus gives, which we're about to read from, he's preparing his disciples for the second advent. He tells them using different parables, different expressions, how we are to be ready for his second advent. Uh, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. 
But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, these words are sobering to us. They're a splash of cold water to the face after a period of sleepiness. Would you, by the power of your Spirit now, use this word to invigorate us rather than frighten us, to excite and move your people to action rather than to chase us away? Would we receive this word about your son's second advent with the joy and gladness, sober though it may be, that it's intended to be? We need your help. Help your people who come to you now hear the words you speak to us clearly and to receive it with faith. Make us ready for your voice now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In February of 1952, there was a young man named Jim Elliott. He had just turned 24 and along with a handful of other young people landed in the capital city of Ecuador to begin a very risky missionary venture. These were able-bodied, intelligent young people. They had variously studied philosophy and architecture and linguistics, uh, but they were all moved by stories that they had heard from missionaries to Ecuador that there were still many, many people groups living in the Amazon region of Ecuador who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were unreached peoples. And so these young people, these young Christians who loved Jesus, who wanted to serve him, they picked up their lives, moved to another country, they began to learn the language and culture and customs of the local people. Some of them got married while they were in Ecuador. They built lives there. They, come, they came to love the labor of a missionary, difficult and uncomfortable though it was. Years later, Jim was now 28, married. He had a child. He wanted to keep taking risks. Going out farther and deeper into the Amazon, there was a, a particular people group that was very deep in the Amazon, Many of the locals considered them actually to be quite dangerous, quite hostile to strangers. But importantly, they had never had missionaries make prolonged gospel contact with them. After several months of attempting contact and having a few brief but friendly encounters, a group of four missionaries, including Jim, landed their small plane in an area close to where this tribe lived. They had the hopes of building friendship that would lead to further gospel witness. But these plans never materialized. On January 8th, 1956, all four men were killed by members of that tribe. Their bodies were found pierced downstream from the river where they landed their plane. This story is a story of great risk, of giving away time, effort, and even life itself for the good of others and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some, though, this is a story of waste. 
Each of these young men, they could have lived very full, very easy, very safe lives in America. They could have raised families, started a business, saved for retirement, gone on vacations to Europe. Instead, they used their youth, their intelligence, and their hustle in an attempt to benefit others and out of a desire to serve their master, Jesus Christ, who loved them very much. And they lost their lives for it. The parable of the talents is one of Jesus's easiest parables to understand, but perhaps the most difficult to apply. The parable is very difficult for you and I to apply to our lives because what it calls for, a radical realignment of our priorities, a call for us to leave behind selfish, self-interested lives and take up lives that are willing to take risks to work hard for God's kingdom, this is very hard to do. The big idea of this parable, the theme that we'll return to over and over again, is that God has entrusted you with his property, and he will return one day to settle all accounts. How are you investing what you've received? Again, God's the master who has given you everything you have, all that you are, your money, your education, your family, your free time, your intelligence. These are gifts that he has entrusted to you. And at his promised second advent, he will come back to settle all accounts. At that time, he'll assess how you've made use of all that he's entrusted to you. What kind of servant will you be found on that day? I want us to look at four features of this parable here to outline our time together. And they are responsibility, time restriction, reward, and repercussion. Okay? responsibility, time restriction, reward, and repercussion. To understand this parable, to be ready for Christ's second advent requires we have an understanding of these four things. So the first one is responsibility. The master in this parable entrusts his three servants with differing numbers of talents. A talent uh, it refers to a very large sum of money. We use the word talent, of course, to mean, hey, I can tap dance and I can whistle. But talent back then, just, it simply meant money. A talent was extremely valuable. Just one talent was worth about 20 years of a laborer's wages. Some translations uh, translate talent as bags of gold, just to give you a sense of their great worth. This is money that the master is entrusting to each servant as a responsibility for them. Verse 14, look at it. It says that he entrusts his property to them. To entrust means to give authority over to someone, to, to give it over to them entirely for them to employ how they see fit. He doesn't, in this story at least, give any kind of detailed instructions with how they're to use the talent, only he says, here you go, make it count. In the same way, God has entrusted you with everything you have, with everything you are. These are all gifts given to you. And he expects you, with whatever he's given you, to use it to benefit others and to advance the kingdom of God. These are the responsibilities that God has laid on you. God's entrusted you with his property. Again, look at the things in your life differently. Your bank account, your education, your children. They're not your own. You are a steward of these things. You've been entrusted with them for a short time. One day the master will return and settle all accounts. How are you investing what you've received? 
A second feature of this parable is the time restriction. Verse 14 tells us the master in the story is going on a journey, so he entrusts his servants with his property, with his riches, and then he went away uh, with the promise that one day he would return. However the servants discharge their responsibility, it can only be done in a very narrow time frame. What was given? From the moment they receive the property until the master returns, and when he returns again, he will settle accounts. So time is short. That's why in verse 16, it's very important here, it says that the servants who received the five talents, the servant who received the two talents, went at once and traded them. That means uh, they put that money to work, uh, invested it in something, started a business. You know, we don't really know what they did, only that they got to it right away. Like all investments, the earlier you start, the better. The longer the money just kind of sits there doing nothing, the quicker it loses its value, the less opportunity it has to do good. Listen, we're in the same situation, friends. God's entrusted you with the gifts of his giving, time, money, family, ability to serve, and so on. And he expects us to use what he's given us to benefit others, to advance the gospel. But listen, there's only a short time for you to do this. There's only a brief window in our lives to labor once Christ returns or we breathe our last breath, whichever comes first. There's accountability. Again, God's entrusted you with his property, and at his second advent, or at death, he'll return to settle his accounts with you. Are you investing all that you've received for his purposes, as he's intended you? So responsibility, time restriction, third, reward. When the master returns and sees the faithfulness of his first two servants, we'll deal with the third one soon, there's the promise of reward. Look at verse 21. It's identical to verse 23. He says the same thing, whether the servant has made a lot or made a little. uh, He's seen their labor. They've worked to increase his wealth while he was away. And he says to each of them, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This, this saying that the master says to both of these servants, it means at least two things about how we are to understand reward. First, the reward given for faithfulness is not less responsibility, it's more, right? I will now set you over much. A second thing to learn about reward, if hearing that the reward for your responsibility or carrying out faithfully what God's given to you, if that frightens you, like this means more work, <laughs> listen to how the master describes it. Enter into the joy of your master. The vision of reward in the Bible is not an eternity of doing nothing at all. Nor is it a vision of unending, joyless service to God. Rather, for those in Christ, eternity will be spent doing what God's made us to do forever. Serving him, serving others. The joy of self-forgetfulness and serving others in the joy of God's presence. This is a proper vision of reward. Maybe some of us need to be corrected about what we think of the ideal life. It's not eternal selfishness, but eternal, joyful self-giving. So, responsibility, time restriction, reward, and fourth, repercussion. The third servant, the one who was entrusted with one talent. Look at verse 18 with me. What did he do when he received that talent? He dug a hole. He hid it in the ground. And when the master returns... He's not pleased with this servant. Look at verse 24. The servant describes his his thought process to the master. Really, this is just him making excuses. He says, 
He knows the master is a hard man. That means he's an exacting man. He's a man who expects a lot of his servants. And so the servant says, in verse 25, I was afraid. He's saying, I didn't want you to be mad. I, I, I didn't want to mess things up. So I just kept the talent you gave me hidden in this hole. And look, you have what you gave me. Here it is. In verse 26, the master sees directly through this excuse making. And this is what he says. This is a wicked and a slothful servant. He calls this servant a selfish sack of lazy bones. If the servant was actually so afraid that, uh, of his master that, that he is who the servant claims he is, why didn't he even just put the least amount of work into this? Why not, as verse 27 says, why don't you just invest the money with the bankers? Why not put it in one of those low-interest savings accounts that yields like 0.01% every year? Uh, that at least would have been something. But this servant wasn't even willing to do that. Opening a savings account was just too much effort for this guy. In verse 30, the master calls him, and he calls this kind of life worthless. This is not an insult. This is just a simple statement of fact. Worthless means unprofitable. The servant has lived his life actively avoiding hard work that would benefit others and would go towards his master's good. And the repercussion is that this servant will not enter into the joy of his master. Remember, the reward for faithfulness, biblically speaking, is more responsibility, not less. This lazy servant has shown that he's not interested in the master's kingdom. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He finds no joy in serving his master, in giving himself for the good of others. And so what the master would give him, which is more responsibility, would be of no joy to this servant. And so in verse 30, he's tossed out. The servant perhaps gets what he thought he wanted all along. He has freedom from his master, freedom from responsibility, free to live only for himself as he has been. But then he finds it to be a misery, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an image that Matthew's gospel frequently uses to describe hell and eternal separation from God. For those who would say maybe something similar to what this last servant says, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a servant of God. I want, I want some Christianity, but I also just want a comfortable, self-focused life. I, I don't want to work hard for the kingdom. I don't want to do things that are hard to obey in. I don't want to take risks for Jesus or for others. All I want is a religion that benefits me. You know, might, makes my life better. You know, maybe keeps me from doing some bad things, but that's enough for me. Friends, this parable is a huge warning to such thinking. Such faith, a faith that refuses risks, refuses to use the life that you've been given to labor hard after serving others and expanding the master's kingdom, this is a worthless and unprofitable faith. Friends, God has entrusted you with his property. All you have, all you are, your money, your skills, your time, it has been given to you to be used for his purposes. When he returns, what will you be found to have used his wealth for? Will you be found to have invested faithfully? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or will you be found to have buried it in with a risk-averse, lazy life? Friends, this might be easy to understand, but hard to do. Serving others is hard. It's natural for all of us 
to want to serve ourselves before we serve others. As one pastor puts it memorably, it's our inclination, it is all of our inclination to replace Jesus' call to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him with a self-serving path in which we deny our neighbors, take up our comforts, and follow our dreams. So what can be done for hearts like ours? Hearts that would rather pile up our riches than invest it in kingdom work. Hearts that try to hold on to stuff that we are sure to lose one day. What do we do? Well, we're to do what we are always to do. When we find we are not the people that God made us to be, we are to look to Christ and his work. See, this is the good news. While you and I are on our own unprofitable servants, inclined to self-love, Christ, Jesus, is the completely faithful servant. Christ took all of the riches that the Father had entrusted him, and he risked it all. He invested every last penny by giving himself entirely to the benefit of the kingdom and the benefit of you on the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid an incredible price. He suffered, he bled, and he died. And why did Christ do this? Why did he give himself completely? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, he says it perfectly. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus' death wasn't random. It was a ransom. With his own blood, Jesus was making a costly purchase. He was purchasing a people to belong to himself out of sheer love, out of sheer grace, not because of anything we have done. He purchased for himself people like you and I, people who are self-interested, who are filled with self-love, whoever he would draw to himself so that we can be made finally eternally rich in him. Friends, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. He became poor, not only so that we could be forgiven of our laziness and our indifference to the kingdom of God and others, but also so that we could be made rich, so that we could be entrusted with God's great wealth to imitate the love and service of Christ our master. The, the servants in this parable have no money on themselves unless God gives it to them, unless the master gives it to them. Like the servants in this parable, therefore, you don't have a dollar to your name unless the master gives it to you first. Before you can ever try to serve others, try to serve God, you must first admit that you are poor and bankrupt on your own. You don't have a dollar to give unless it's first been given to you. Unless Christ first gives himself for you, you have nothing to offer others, nothing of worth. You have nothing to offer to Christ unless Christ first gives himself for us. Now, I want us to consider one serious application of this text, and that's the application to our wallets. To our bank account. The theologian Fleming Rutledge is quick to point out that this parable has to do with money and that this is unavoidable. She notes that there's perhaps no area that Jesus talks about more as an indicator for where our hearts affections actually lie than on how you and I use and hold on to money. Stories throughout the Gospels, Jesus and the rich young ruler, uh, the widow's might, this parable, many others. His teachings uh, in the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 6, where he tells us to not hold on to wealth, rather to give it away, because where our treasure is, there our hearts will follow. 
See, your money tells a story about what you value and what you treasure. To some, money means security. To some, it means power. To some, it means the opportunity for pleasure and leisure. But for a Christian, the call is for money to be seen as a trust given you from God. Every last dollar. So let me ask you this. What are you invested in? What story does your money tell about what you value most? About what you treasure most? Whose kingdom right now are you laboring to expand with the money God's entrusted to you? Look, we, we could ask the same question when it comes to your children or your free time. These are good questions, good applications of this text. But nothing quite makes us squirm like being asked where our dollars actually go. The Bible's call for giving is clear. It's to be cheerful, it's to be generous, it's to be sacrificial. We're not looking for a bunch of grumpy givers. Cheerful, generous, sacrificial. In the Bible, the standard for giving is the tithe. That means at least 10%, if not more. What you bring in of the money you make, it's to be given back to God, invested in the kingdom. So if you look at your income and you look at your spending, if you then look at what you give away to benefit others to grow the kingdom, if every dollar you spend was an investment, who would benefit? Who would be getting rich right now? Whose kingdom are you laboring to expand? Listen, this is, this is not about who gives most, right? The tithe is the same percentage. Uh, people give different amounts. Um, the master commends the servant who, who got a lot, also the servant who gave little. It seems like he had actually very low expectations. If you use that savings account, earned 0.1%, great. It doesn't matter to the master the amount, but the faithfulness. Both people with little wealth and people with much wealth, they all, we all need to grow in cheerful, generous, and sacrificial giving. So let me make a, a very particular razor-sharp application for you, for us as a church, as we end this year, as we go into the new year, to be found to be a church filled with people committed to radical generosity to others and to God. Again, let me get very specific and ask you, if you're not giving at least 10% of your income to the church, if this is your home church, if you're part of another church, give there. If you're not a Christian and you're here visiting, this, we don't always talk about money, but it's in the text. We have to talk about it. If you're not giving at least 10% of what you bring home, why not? Why not change that? What's keeping you from using what the Lord's entrusted you with to benefit others and to serve the kingdom? What, what kind of damage could we be doing as a church for the kingdom in Halifax if we were radically generous? What kind of needs could we meet? What other kinds of gospel projects could we take on if we were giving as we ought to? The call for us this morning is certainly to give generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially, but also call for our own hearts to hold on to our wealth much more loosely, to give far more generously than we are. And it's because of this. God's entrusted you with his wealth, with his property, and he will return one day to settle all accounts. How are you investing what you've received? The story of Jim Elliot is a story of risk or a story of waste, depending on your perspective. He had so much going for him, and he gave it all away, right? 
gave his time, he gave his money, and in the end he gave his life. One of the most beautiful parts of this story, if you're familiar with the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, is the aftermath of his death. He, he inspired people to live lives of risk for the kingdom. Jim's wife, Elizabeth, continued his work in Ecuador. She actually met face-to-face with the people who killed her husband and left their child without a father. And because of the gospel, which is the good news of forgiveness for sinners like Elizabeth, she was able to forgive those men. She gave them the gospel of a Savior who himself was killed, giving his life for the good of others. Many of the men and women from that tribe later came to know Christ. They repented of their sins. They trusted in him. One day in eternity, they will enter into the joy of the master beside the man that they took the life of. Jim Elliot was a good and faithful servant. He entered into the joy of his master. He risked greatly. He used everything that God had given him, his youth, his intelligence, his hustle, to benefit his master and to bless others, and he received a great reward for it. In Jim's journal, in the years before he left for Ecuador, he wrote these famous words. What, what would motivate somebody to give it all away, to hold on to life and property loosely? This is what he wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Again, he is no fool. It is not a foolish investment to give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Friends, God's entrusted you with all that you have, and his second advent will be the moment when he returns to settle all accounts. Will you give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose? Would you join me in prayer? I'll invite you to turn in your worship guide to the Lord's Prayer, which we'll pray together in a moment. Our Father, We thank you for Christ, who has given himself entirely for our good, so that we could be rich to others and to you. God, we admit our own inner poverty, our own spiritual bankruptness. We have no good in ourselves to give to you and to others unless Christ first enriches us through his body and blood. And so we turn from ourselves and we turn to him now, asking for forgiveness but also for restoration and renewal in our hearts. We, we see things in our hearts that we are not proud of and we know ought to change, and so Lord, change us. Would you, would you move this church, would you move my heart and the hearts of those who hear towards generosity with their finances, with their life, a general sense of hustle in our church for the good of others and the advancement of the kingdom here in Halifax in this city that you love. So Lord, help us, move us, we ask. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray this way, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.